Today's reading is Psalm 133 and Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. It can be found on your screen. This is God's word. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth and love, we will in all things grow up into him, who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Friends, as we look at this passage, Psalm 133, and as we listen for God's voice in it, let's stop a moment and just ask for God to join us and to um, teach us through this passage. Heavenly God, our lives long for hearing something that rings deeply true something that draws us in to a more spacious, loving place and a more grace-filled path of life. Whether we're celebrating things or suffering and hurting right now, all of us have this longing and it's a longing for you. Would you now in this time be a presence that um, meets us and speaks to us in mysterious and simple ways? We are lost in many ways and more lost than we want to admit. And you move towards us in grace, loving us on a path home. So please do that even now in this time as we listen for your voice. Amen. Catherine King and Wayne Adams are a couple who live independently, off the grid, alone, off the coast of Victoria Island, 25 minute boat ride from the nearest city. They've established a 1 million uh, ton series of structures that they live on, a floating residence that they've lived on for 29 years and it's tethered to the land, but it's completely floating and they call it Freedom Cove. It's their own little uh, utopian, individualized existence. In 1970, 
or in the 70s, in 1976, actually, Tom Wolfe wrote in New York in New York Magazine. He described the 1970s as the me decade, the decade of independence. Me. Wolf observed that the old alchemical dream was changing base metals into gold. The new alchemical dream is changing one's personality, remaking, remodeling, elevating and polishing one's very self. And this trend in our culture, um, of course, as things always do, it made it way into the church and how the church operates so that we can notice that if we if we pay close attention that this new phrase begins to pop up in the 60s and 70s personal relationship with Jesus and the surprising fact is that if you look it up and you follow the tracking of the usage of terms it's almost non-existent before the 1960s, but from the mid-1960s on, the usage in all literature skyrockets. This phrase, personal relationship with Jesus, virtually a non-existent phrase before the 1960s. And now it's with us, it seems, to stay. Now, some of you might say, oh, I see what Mark's doing. He's criticizing this phrase, personal relationship with Jesus. Um, but come on, Mark, it's, there's definitely personal side to one's relationship with God, isn't there? And of course there is. There is a personal engagement and encounter and experience of God that you should expect in the Christian life. There is such a thing as personal confession. There is such a thing as personal really epiphanies that God brings to us in our walk with God. And there is such a thing, I, I believe, as God's personal attention on each of us. But we're talking about really the problem of how this phrase, personal relationship with Jesus, um, really becomes something else. It really begins to actually mean more of a privatized relationship with Jesus. So much so that when we're reading this psalm that starts out, it's a beautiful psalm, praising the, praising the trait of togetherness and unity in God's people. And it reads, it reads, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We read it maybe somewhat like this. How good and pleasant it is when God's individuals victoriously surmount their private obstacles. How good and pleasant it is when God's people thrive independently by the strength that God gives each and every one of them separately so that they can make their unique mark on this world. And so people have written about this trend, including um, one Christian author named Jared Wilson, who writes this, the American church 
has done a great disservice in merging one's journey of faith with the values of the American dream. We like to use phrases like personal Lord and Savior and personal relationship with Jesus, neither of which is wrong per se, but neither do they reflect the fullness of life in Jesus's kingdom. The truth is that while we are saved as individuals, we are not saved to an individual walk. And while our faith may be personal, it is not private. Chad Bird writes in his book, Upside Down Spirituality, that there's someone named Nate Larkin who came to understand this the hard way. He was raised in the church. His father was an evangelist and pastor. Nate was the kind of Sunday school kid who always wore his Sunday best and could spout all the Bible verses and without missing a word. Eventually, he would even follow in his father's footsteps and enter the ministry. He also, over time, would enter the dark world of porn and prostitutes. He was leading a double life that no one knew about. But he kept telling himself that he could break free from this enslavement on his own. He was, after all, an American male, a rugged individualist by temperament and training. Even when his secret life blew up in his face, when his sins were exposed, he, he quote, didn't want help, not human help. I wanted God to help me without involving anybody else. Nate, after all, had a personal relationship with Jesus. When his double life really bothered him, he'd just double down on that relationship. He'd make vows to get up before the crack of dawn, spend more devotional time with Christ, pray longer prayers, learn more Bible verses by heart. It would seem to work for a few days, but then his life would fall to pieces again. He needed more. He needed something better, as Nate put it. My relationship, my personal relationship with Christ hadn't worked, and I knew it was my fault. What I did not yet understand was that while Jesus does offer a personal re relationship to every one of his disciples, he never promises any of us a private one. He needed what we all need is the body of Christ. And Nate began to realize this. And with that realization and the growing unity he enjoyed, especially with his brothers in Christ, he was able to find in them a kind of relationship he had needed all along, a group relationship. They reminded him that we may all be unique. We may all be snowflakes, but we're all, quote, composed of the same stuff. We all fall to the ground and we achieve our most captivating beauty in community. Like when kids are at the beach attempting to build something, to build a castle right at the edge of where the water meets the sand. The me culture all around us and the 30, 40, 50 years of its development are constantly fighting and washing away any of the chance of us sticking together. And so there's countless Bible passages that seem to be attempting to shore us up together and draw us into a group against all odds. Because like Cyprian of Carthage said long ago, one can no longer have God for their father who has not the church for their mother. You can't have God as your father without the church as your mother. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, he called out 
pulling all of us in, but he wasn't calling out to individuals when he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He was identifying each of us in humanity as ones who are drawn into a collective them. Father, forgive them. And we are drawn in through the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. We are drawn in and remade into a new people. That is our identity, if you're a Christian. A new us defined by the cross and the empty tomb. The body with many parts, but it's a body that's together. It's the body of the redeemed, the body of the forgiven. When a Christian gets baptized, they are baptized not into their own little private cell of spirituality. They are baptized into the church. And when God speaks to each and every one of us through the Bible, through scripture, it is not through my Bible. It is not just me privately hearing a message all by myself, but even if I am in a closet all by myself, I'm actually hearing it, th hearing it through our Bible and our scripture, and not just those of us who are reading it today, but those throughout all of history who are a part of its composition and interpreting over the centuries for God's people. We've even, we are even told in the Bible in one place, something so revolutionary and countercultural, we are told to confess our sins to each other of all things. The Bible's constantly trying to shore us up, draw us together against all odds that we would be stuck together. But God says that's going to be beautiful. He says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Let's take a minute to reflect on what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through this message. And then I'll close in prayer. Let us pray. Our heavenly God, would you draw us together? Would you help us to find the joy and the delight and the beauty that you see when we are together? Would you help draw us in against all odds, against all our resistance to deeper faith together that we might know you better that we might know ourselves better for who you have made us and that we might serve your world better. We pray in Jesus' name through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.